The theme this morning, the title this morning is Come Let Us Adore Him. Words that we're very familiar with from that Christmas carol, O come all ye faithful. O come let us adore him. That's a theme that I'd like us to, to focus on this morning. Coming to Christ. But not just coming to him, but adoring him as well. What do you naturally think about when you hear those words, O come, let us adore him? We probably think of walking up to a big nativity scene, a life-size nativity scene in a church, and just looking at baby Jesus in the manger with Mary and Joseph looking down on him, the animals in the background. Maybe we think of a small nativity set at home, that we might use and we think of our eyes go to Jesus as the baby in the manger and that's him who we adore sometimes that's what our thoughts go to at Christmas time many people are thinking of Jesus in that way just a little baby in the manger born into poverty born into almost genocide. He had to flee. He was a refugee. He had to go to Egypt with Mary and Joseph before returning. But yet for others, Christmas time is not so much a time of focusing on Jesus. It's a time of just having a holiday, having lots of things to buy and receive, lots of partying, overindulgence in food and drink. So much so that in the 17th century, the Puritans banned Christmas. (laughs) They actually outlawed it, literally. They passed laws that said Christmas. Nobody was allowed to celebrate it. (coughs) Some of those laws still haven't been repealed. It's still illegal to eat a mince pie. (laughs) Just one of those anachronisms. But back then there wasn't so much a focus on Christ at Christmas time. The 12 days of Christmas were were a big long party. The 12 days of Christmas were when most businesses had closed down and there would be non-stop dancing, singing, drinking, exchanging presents, stage plays, no TVs then. And the 12th night saw a, a resurgence of a boost of feasting and carnivals all leading to drunkenness, gambling, and other forms of excess. It was also in Massachusetts that they also banned it. Some of the Puritans had moved over there as well. But overall, it's not surprising that they outlawed it because they wanted to... It was an attempt to have a more godly celebration or a more godly time. As Philip Stubbs notes... It resulted in more mischief in those 12 days than in all the rest of the year. And it was all to the great dishonor of God. We need reminders to focus our minds on the things of God at this time of year. And if we celebrate the birth of Jesus, although not everyone does, some Christians prefer not to at this time of year as well, but 
we would want to focus our minds on him instead of the excesses and the overindulgence and the worldliness that characterizes so much that goes on. It's good to have a time of holiday. The Bible has many feast days and holidays in the Old Testament. God gave them as part of the law of Moses. So God isn't against having holidays and celebrations. It's good to have family time, but not to the excess that is so characteristic. (coughs) We also want to focus our minds on Christ. But not just the little baby that's that we see in, in so many mangers. We want to focus on Christ as he's portrayed in God's word, as God wants us to worship him. For for too many people in in too many churches, their main view of Christ is the baby at Christmas in the manger the figure on the cross who's permanently dying on the crucifix. And yet, Jesus isn't there anymore. Jesus is risen. And he's no longer on the cross. When he had atoned on the cross for the sins of his people, for the sins of everyone who would turn to him, he said, it is finished. And he came down, he died, he came down from the cross, he went in the tomb, and he rose again, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. What he is doing is he is interceding for us. He's applying that work that he'd done on the cross, the blessings that he secured there. He's applying the, the benefits of that to us as we pray to, to him. The call to adore Jesus is much more than just thinking about the manger or the crucifix. Or different denominations have different views of the presence of Jesus in the bread and the wine. Lutherans believe that there is still a real presence of Jesus in the bread and the wine. Others have different views as well. We, we see it more as a remembrance. Do this to remember me. It's symbolic rather than actual. So when we're adoring Jesus, how should we worship him? We might come with our own thoughts, but are our own thoughts really the best way to be guided? Because we are separated from God, because there is that distance in our relationship Because we're not guided by him, our hearts lead us off in all kinds of directions. Elaine read a book there just over a year ago, and it was a great book. And the title was Don't Follow Your Heart. Because although sometimes we can end up doing good things, often our heart will lead us off into all kinds of other directions. Our worship should be guided by what God says in his word. Our worship should be. Worship actually, the term worship is actually a misunderstood word. Many people think that worship is what we do in an hour on a Sunday morning. Or maybe more focused, it's the singing and the music part of a 
of a service. But worship in the Bible often doesn't mention anything about singing or music. That's one part of worship. Worship is a way of life. Brian Adams sang the song, Everything I do, I do it for you. That describes worship. If we're doing everything we do for God, in service to him, in love for him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A few hundred years ago, a great summary of what the Christian life and Christian teaching was defined. And one of the first questions in a catechism was, what's the main reason for living? What's the chief end of man, to put it in old language? What's the purpose of life? And the answer was simple, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Everything we do, we ought to do it for him. And in the process, we enjoy him. We are blessed. We are blessed in a way that we could never be blessed if we're trying to seek enjoyment in itself. But when we put God first, we are blessed in a way which we could not be any other way. The word worship, though, is so often equated with music and singing. Songwriter and musician and pastor Bob Coughlin, who has written many songs that we sing um, from Sovereign Grace Music, he wrote recently that he had the wrong view of worship for 20 years. He equated it with music and singing instead of all of life. But after reading David Peterson's book, Engaging with God, A Biblical Theology of Worship, he realized that the Bible didn't equate worship with music or feelings or a special sense of the presence of God, religious ecstasy, or even deep humiliation before God, a sense of our own sinfulness and a sense of thanks for the cross. These are parts of worship, but these are not what it is on its own. He noted that worship isn't centered on me. Many people go to church, they get a good feeling. It's about me. Jesus, be the center of my life. It's about me. But instead, it should be on him. We should be looking up rather than asking him to look down. And it's when we look up that he looks down even more closely and more lovingly towards us. Jesus says to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, The time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way, for God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We need the Holy Spirit to be able to worship God properly. And we need to be doing it in truth. We need to understand what God's word says, what his truth is, so that we can understand how he wants us to worship. Coughlin says, Far from being a special moment in a Christian's meeting, God-honoring worship is the natural state of our hearts when we seek to do all to the glory of God. I can worship God by greeting a church member on Sunday morning. I continue worshiping as I lift my voice in songs of praise, gladly giving 
donations to the church, listening to the sermon, praying for a friend after the service. These are all acts of worship. More to the point, he writes, I can continue worshipping God as I have guests over for lunch, as I clean up afterwards, as I take a nap later on that in the afternoon. And my worship doesn't stop as I faithfully seek to exalt Christ in my home, my workplace, school or neighbourhood, by displaying a heart of gratitude and servanthood that has been transformed by the gospel. Scripture speaks of distinct acts of worship, but all of these take place within the larger context of our all-of-life worship. He writes, I think he really puts it well there, because worship is about how we live, it's about all that we do. We do it for him. And so when we come to adore him, it's not just something that we do on a Sunday. It's not just something that we do at this time of year. It's something we ought to do all through the year, all through the week. Jesus told us to take up our cross daily and to follow him. That's what he wants of us. And to use Paul's language, taking up our cross daily means to put to death our own old sinful nature. And to follow him means to walk in the Spirit. It's a way of life rather than a a short something that we do. So when we worship him, there are various different ways in which we can worship, but we have to worship him according to how he has told us in his word what worship is. Singing praises is part of our worship. Having personal devotions is another part. But we don't stop our worship when we go out to work, when we're helping others, when we're doing various things, when we're when we're doing the more mundane things of life. These, if we do them for him, that is worship. That's what, that's what Luther mentioned once when he, he had the, the idea of the priesthood of all believers. What he meant was that every believer, no matter what they are doing, is as close to God as any other person in whatever they are doing. There is no two-tier level of Christianity. Some people are not closer to God than others. We can all be as close to him if we're at work or if we're in full-time Christian ministry. Sometimes people at work can actually be worshipping God in their work better than somebody who's a full-time Christian because they're just doing it. They're going through the motions sometimes. Whereas those who are working can be fervently, Lord, I'm doing this for you today. Please help me. Please guide me. And so worship can be whatever we do, as long as we do it for him. And yet sometimes we come to God and we thank him for all he has done. We look at how he has blessed us. And it's good to do that. We thank him in in many different situations, we pray and we thank him. It's, it's just part of what we ought to do. But how often, how often does our praise and our worship 
not just thank God for what he has done for me, for us. How often is our praise and our worship of him simply just focused on him? How often do we adore him? How how often do we worship him because he is worthy of being worshipped? Instead of just out of thanks because he has been good to us. Come let us adore him. We don't find the word adore very commonly in a lot of Bible-based churches. The whole idea of adoring Christ, of adoring God, is not part of our vocabulary naturally, but I think it ought to be. I think we ought to more have adoration as part of our worship, where we're not just thanking God for, well, it's a good relationship for us, and we naturally thank people who've been good to us. We should adore God and worship him for who he is, not just because of what he has given us, not just for the blessings we have. We should we should have a sense of wonder, of rejoicing in our hearts, because he is worthy. At Christmas time, we tend to focus on the baby in the manger. At other times, we focus on Christ on the cross. At Easter, we also focus on his resurrection from from the dead. But let's focus on what God's word says. Let's be saturated with it. And let's adapt our lives. Let's change our lives and just do what his word says rather than be focused on what we would naturally feel. That way we're going to be more likely to be doing what God wants. There's a phrase that is actually a very common phrase or a very common approach that a lot of people have to God today. It's called therapeutic deism. It's a bit technical, but deism means about God. And therapeutic, well, basically a lot of people come to God because it's therapy. And we do get blessed when we come to God. There's nothing wrong with doing that at all. But if that's all that our relationship is based on, that we come to God for what we can get out of him, well, that's not really worship. We need to move beyond the basics, the milk, in a sense, of spiritual truths, to the meat, the solid food, to become mature in our walk with him, to move deeper in our hearts, to draw closer to him. Paul Paul writes to the Ephesians and he says, after talking about how glorious the gospel is, what God has done, he says, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you (coughs) with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, 
how wide, how long, how high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. We don't simply want a ticket to heaven. We want to know God more. We want to end up in a, in a relationship where we're closer to him. We're able to enter into adoration and living for him in a deeper way. While the Israelites were focused on while struggling with the golden calf and repentance and for that, being discipled for their discipline for their sin, Moses was up the mountain again meeting God. In Exodus 33, we, we read that his concern was he wanted to see something of the glory of God. He asked God to let him see his glory. He wanted to get closer to God. And God obliged him. He, he gave him a glimpse of his glory. Not much because he couldn't handle it all. One day we will see him in glory as he is. The mindset of Moses is the mindset we ought to have, where we want to see more of God. We want to get to know him more. It's not just about receiving things from him, but we want to draw closer to him. We ought to praise him. We ought to enjoy praising him. In Revelation 19, John writes in his vision, which is very symbolic, Then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshipped God who was sitting on the throne. They cried out, Amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. The angels in heaven worship God. John's vision of the, the believers who have gone on ahead and are in God's presence are worshipping him. Earlier in, in his book, he, he, he said an angel asked who is worthy to open the, open the scroll. As history was developing, somebody needed to be found who could open the scroll so that the course of history could, could unfold. And he wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. But then... One of the 24 elders said to him, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. These are titles for Jesus. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. This is symbolic language, a way of describing Jesus as the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, 
Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voice of thousands of millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. They sang, Blessing and honour and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb for ever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. What a vision of praise. What a vision of worship. The angels in heaven, those who have gone before us, to be with the Lord, we see a vision of them worshipping and adoring him. They adored Jesus, the Lamb of God, because he is worthy of all blessing and honour and praise to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory forever. He is worthy to be worshipped because he is worthy to be worshipped. We should come and adore him because he is worthy of our adoration. And yet, Jesus hasn't stayed in heaven to be worshipped by the angels and just anybody else taking glory and worship. It just doesn't sit right. It's just not right for any of us to receive glory and and people's worship. But God is perfect. God is the ultimate one. There's no one higher. He is the one who we ought to worship. When you think about it, everybody worships. Worship is part of our being. Everybody worships something or someone. It can be Man United. It can be Liverpool. It can be our cars can be our physique, it can be our looks, it can be our children. We are created to worship. And one of the things that's often a gauge of what we worship and affect in our lives is what do we talk about to friends? What do we talk about to others? What are we focused on? In a very real way, many football matches have replaced church services. People love being together as part of a community of people. They love singing together. They love having a focus. Football's great, but it shouldn't replace worship of God. And yet, God hasn't left us on our own. 
God doesn't just say, those who are worthy, come into my presence. He has come into our world knowing that we are unworthy. And he has lived a perfect life. And he gives us that perfection as a gift. He died on the cross to atone for our sins. And that forgiveness he gives to us as a gift. He has a perfect spirit. The Holy Spirit is described in a few places in the New Testament as the spirit of Jesus, the spirit of Christ. He has a perfect spirit and he gives us his spirit as a gift so that we will be able to come into his presence as those who are righteous, those who are accepted, those who are worthy, not in ourselves, but in him. He has come into our world so that we can enter into his world. And he makes it possible for us to come to him, to worship him, to thank him, to praise him. In fact, his reason to come into our world is not just to save us. Yes, that's part of it. But very often we think that Christ came because we were in a predicament. And his primary purpose for coming into this world was because we had a need that only he could meet. But yet, as John Piper says, one of his well-known sayings, just a very short saying is, that mission exists because worship doesn't. Christ came into this world to save people. He, He brings us into a new relationship with God not just so that we would have a great time in eternity, but so that we would worship God. That is the purpose of us living with him for eternity. Mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists so that people can come to our new relationship with God, enter into that joy and that peace of knowing him and be able to live for him. And living for God means loving our neighbor as well as loving him. Our salvation ought to be God-centered, not us-centered. And when we put him first, we are more blessed than when we put us first. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, said, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that all we'll be doing is singing. Just like we're, we, we worship God in various different walks of life here and now, there's no reason to think that we won't be doing the same there and then. We will have work. Work is only a drudgery because of sin. But work was a gift that we might be fulfilled, that we might serve others. As we hear the call to come, let us adore him. Let's remember that Jesus was sent into this world not to pass sentence on it, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3.17 is 
comes just after those famous words, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And the reason is that God sent Jesus into the world not to pass sentence on us, not to simply point a finger at us, but that through him we might be saved. He will come in judgment one day, and every sin, every evil will get what it deserves. But his first coming was that we might be forgiven, restored to God. And so, let's learn how to praise him. Let's learn how to worship him. For example, in Psalm 105, we're told, Give thanks to the Lord and proclaim his greatness. Let the whole world know what he has done. Sing to him. Yes, sing his praises. Tell everyone about his wonderful deeds. Exalt his holy name. Rejoice, you who worship the Lord. Worship is about putting him first. And he brings us into a new relationship with him so that we can do that and we can love our neighbour as ourselves as part of our worship. In the Lord's Prayer, it's often missed that the beginning is Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we ought to worship him, putting him first. We ought to focus on the Father, on the Son, and on the Holy Spirit. We ought to worship him not only when we come together in organized services. We ought to worship him in our own personal devotions. We ought to worship him in everything we do. When we come together as we shouldn't, we shouldn't neglect the things that God has given us, the means of grace. We have Bibles easily accessible. We can read his word. We can hear him speak to us. Or as Corey Tam Boom once said, we shouldn't stop meeting together. When a Christian shuns fellowship with other Christians, the devil smiles. When a Christian stops studying the Bible, the devil laughs. And when a Christian stops praying, the devil shouts for joy. These are ways in which we can worship him. Jerry Bridges says that these spiritual disciplines of worshiping together, of personal devotions, of praying, are there for our good, not our bondage. They are privileges to be used, not duties to be performed things to be enjoyed not things on a list to tick off we have a great privilege of being able to come into God's presence by the blood of the lamb so we shouldn't shy away from him out of guilt or out of fear Timothy Keller wrote the gospel is this We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. So let's worship him. Let's thank him. Let's enjoy him. Let's 
keep placing our faith in Jesus. Let's develop that skill and habit of adoration and worship of awe and wonder, not just in our personal devotions or on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. Let's, at this Christmas time, not just focus on the nativity scene, but let's come into his presence wherever we are. Let's adore him and let's worship him in all that we do. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you've called us into a hope of of great blessing. We thank you that that you have showered your blessings upon us even now. But as we look forward to the future, we know there, there will be no more suffering or sorrow or tears, but a time of great joy, a time of great blessing. Lord, your abundance of blessing towards us, we are lost for words sometimes to be able to thank you, to be able to describe it. But Lord, help us not to Focus on us being blessed. Help us to thank you and help us to focus on you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the only one who is worthy to open that scroll. You're the one who is worthy of all worship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are worthy of our worship. Forgive us our sins, Lord, and help us to worship you, trusting in your grace, not looking at our own selves but looking to Jesus. Amen.